Good morning. My name is Carl Ingvi. I'm one of the elders. Scripture passage today comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 and to the end of the chapter. And if you're reading that in the Blue Pew Bible, it's on page 958. We stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the, on the night when he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. You may be seated. We'll take a few minutes to meditate on God's word. I recently saw a funny commercial that opens with a, a man on an airplane, and he's in economy class. And he's sitting there in a kind of a small seat that's being made smaller by a heavyset man who's fallen asleep and leaning into his chair. Behind him is a red-headed 10-year-old boy kicking the back of his chair. And a baby is crying in the background. And he sits there on the aisle, and you can just tell he's just longing for some kind of comfort, some kind of way to get out of this place. And he looks down the aisle... And he sees the curtains are open to first class. And he sort of longingly wanders up to first class. And Frank Sinatra begins singing in the background. Fly me to the moon. And you just get this feeling. He's, he's looking into first class. No seats, just comfortable chairs in a lounge. People who are well-dressed. Quiet music playing. Somebody's sipping champagne. And then a flight attendant sort of rudely comes over and closes the curtains on the guy's face. 
and he sits there, and the, the music dies, and then you hear the baby crying in the background, and the, the last line of the commercial on a black screen says this, first class is there to remind you that you're not in first class. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a really funny commercial, and if you fly, and the few times I do, when you're in economy class, you really understand the nature of that. But it wouldn't be funny if that same kind of thing were happening in a church. Yet that commercial is exactly what's, ha- is exactly what's happening in the church at Corinth. And it's especially happening during communion. In, during communion, the way they were celebrating it was that there was a first class and then there was an economy class. And there was a pretty big difference between the two. And when you came to the communion service, you knew if you were in first class and you knew if you were in the economy class. And when Paul hears about this, it's like his head explodes. He just can't take this idea of what's happening. And so he's addressing this problem. If you were to go to the communion service in Corinth, the, the last line of the, the liturgy would be, communion is here to remind some Christians that they're not in first class. So in chapter 11, Paul starts talking about issues that are taking place in worship. And he does that for chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. And I want you to see the the tone shift from 17 to 34 here in chapter 11 compared to the other parts of these chapters. Chapter 11, verse 2. He starts out here. I'm going to start talking about issues that I need to address in worship. And he says, now I commend you. So there's some things they're doing right. And then he follows follows it up by saying, but I want you to understand. In other words, you're doing some things right, but I need to make some slight adjustments on how you're behaving or how, what you believe. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, another issue he's talking about. I don't want you to be uninformed. You, you feel that tone? I mean, you all have spiritual gifts. That's so great but you're using them in a way that's not healthy, and I don't want you to be uninformed, so I'm going to come in here and inform you of what you should be doing. Chapter 11, verse 17. Here's the tone shift that you need to pick up. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together... You're making things worse. Paul's changing his tone here. He's not, he has nothing to commend about what they're doing. He's not just coming in and saying, hey, some good things are happening here, but let's tweak this and let's kind of move in this direction. No, he's just saying nothing good is happening in your communion service. People are coming in, and when they leave, they're in worse condition than when they started. And I want us to look this morning at how Paul tackles this particular problem. And I want to look at it in three, three areas. First, he attacks the selfishness of these people. He's going to point out the, the selfishness of the attitude of some of the people. Secondly, he's going to point to the selflessness of Jesus. 
So he's going to point to them and say, look at your selfishness. And then let's point to Jesus and look at his selflessness. And then let's turn back around one more time and let you give a self-examination. Let's see our problems. Let's see Jesus. And then let's have a self-examination before we come to the Lord's table. That's how Paul is tackling this. And that's how I want to look at it. First, the selfishness of the Corinthians. Verses 17 through 22. You see there in 17 and 18, the the problem is that the people came together, and when they came to celebrate the communion or the Lord's table, uh, they were doing more harm than good. And the way it was falling out is that instead of this communion that was supposed to bring people together to Christ and people together to one another, it was creating division. It was creating disunion. And the reason it was happening is the way they practiced the Lord's Supper, which is different than the way we do it. So it's helpful to know the history of what's happening here in Corinth. Number one, when the early church got together, they didn't have church buildings. There were no church buildings in the first century. And so they had to get together in homes. They were all house churches. And if the church grew to any size, obviously you had to get some bigger home. And the bigger home usually belonged to the wealthier people. And in a typical wealthy home in Corinth, there were two main rooms that people gathered in. There was one room that was, uh, let's say it was the first class room. When you were throwing a party, these were, this was the place that was, uh, had honored guests come and be in this room. It had couches, it had tables, it had places to sit. And then there was like an overflow room, like a, maybe an economy class room for that party. And that was pretty much for the children and the servants. I don't know if you have a, a Thanksgiving Day, you know, um, dinner, and you have, you know, the adult table, right? And then you have the, that's the children's table. It's usually the card table or whatever, you know, just outside kids, whatever. And, and that's, that's the idea. It's, it's, hey, we have the first class table, and this is where in this, when you had a party like this, the first class people, the people who were in that first room, they got to eat first, and they got a double portion. So the food came out to the first class, and then if there was food left over, they got a double portion, and then if there was food left over from that, if there was food left over, it went into the overflow room. So Paul understands what's happening here is that the, the first-class citizens in the church were the wealthier people. They had more flexibility with their time. When they got together uh, for a communion meal in the first century, it was a whole meal. It wasn't just what we do here. So they would get to the house early because they didn't have to work all day like the poor and the slaves. And they would take the honored seats. And they wouldn't wait for everybody to come. They'd go ahead and start the meal right away. And they would feel like, hey, we get the double portion. And, of course, the people who came who had to be in the overflow room, those were the poor people and the slaves. And quite frequently, the poor people and the slaves showed up, and they were stuck in the overflow room, which had no seating. Frequently, they didn't get anything to eat. That's why Paul says, some of you are going hungry. And they got to peer into the first-class room and see these people sipping champagne. Some of them had had too much to drink. They were actually drunk. 
So you don't you, you feel the anger? Do you not just that setting? That that it's not just a party. A party, you might say, well, this is kind of how things work here. We're this is the church. We're inside the church. We're all here to focus on Jesus. And and what happens is I get reminded that some people aren't in first class when I come to communion. Verse 22, you see the beginning of what Paul says here. He says, what? This, this is a four-letter word for Paul. This is hands in the air, pulling out my hair. This is, I can't believe this is happening in the church. I understand if you're just going to the, to the party down the street, that's, that's one thing. But we're talking about inside the church. It can't possibly ha- be happening inside the church where every, every person is a sinner. Everybody's at the same level. There is no division in the church when everybody is underneath the blood of the Lamb. There is no rich or poor. There is no male or female. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no Greek or Asian or African. Everybody comes into the church with all this stratification out in the culture. But when you come in, it's just one. Everybody is a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And everything gets equalized in the church. But what was happening is they were coming in and saying, the fact that I'm in the second class in the, in the culture, I come in and I feel like I'm still in second class. Or if I'm first class in the culture, I come in and say, I kind of need to be treated like first class. Paul says these meetings, as you can see, are doing more harm than good. I think a close parallel to the practice in Corinth would not be too long ago in America when African Americans came to church, forced to sit on wooden pews in the balcony, while whites came in, sat on cushions, on the first floor and they took communion first and then the african-americans in the balcony this didn't happen that long ago here in wilmington north carolina i think paul would have come to that culture in the same way going what i cannot believe this it's one thing that that's the way the culture works i'm not trying to bang on the culture right now i'm talking about the culture inside the church we can't have that here Paul's stinging response here in verse 22. You despise the church of God. Remember when Paul is on the road to Damascus, meets Jesus. Jesus says, why are you persecuting? What does he say? Me. Paul could have said, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting the church. And Jesus said, well, that's me. So, so you're coming to church. Paul, you, you can feel Paul's energy here. You're despising God by doing this. And secondly, you're humiliating those people who have nothing. It's very important for us to see Paul putting these two practices side by side. How you think about God and how you treat the poor are two sides of 
of the same coin. They're not two separate issues. Paul is trying to help them understand. The Bible doesn't allow us to separate these two activities like the gospel is over here and then how we treat people is over here. They're two two very important sides of this same coin. And of course, Paul isn't putting these two things together for the first time. This is something that's been a theme in the Bible. I love this verse from Jeremiah 22. And he's speaking to a group of religious people who've failed to follow after God. And he's saying about a true follower of God, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? You see what Jeremiah is saying? The the person who knows me is defending the cause of the poor and the needy. The person defending the cause of the poor and needy, that's what it means to know me. They're, They're two sides of this same coin. James, the brother of Jesus. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless. Now, if I were just going to write after that, I just, I try to write a doctrinal statement, a theological statement. Here's what James says, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Of course, Paul and Jeremiah and James are all echoing Jesus, Matthew 22. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is just like it. It's like the backside of the coin. What is it? To love your neighbor as yourself. So when Paul hears about this practice in Corinth, he understands the gospel's at stake. Their practice is putting the gospel at stake. They can't just stand here and say, well, I've got all this intellectual knowledge and I'm not worried about my behavior. He's saying, no, your belief and your behavior, they've got to come together. So if you've got the wrong belief system, the gospel's at stake. If you have the wrong behavioral system, guess what? The gospel is at stake. So that's why Paul is really heated up about this. He sees the gospel's on the line in this church. And so we need to be careful not to to separate our own belief from behavior. What we believe is a gospel issue. How we behave is a gospel issue. So Paul understands this, and so what does he decide to do? Such He's just so brilliant in this letter. I'm constantly amazed at this. How would you attack this? Almost every time Paul says, let's just look at Jesus. This is a good attack plan, right? I mean, if, if you don't understand something, let's look at Jesus. If, you, if you're not behaving correctly, let's look at Jesus. I mean, it's like the Sunday school answer, right? Whatever the teacher asks, what's the answer? I mean, it's Jesus, I guess. I mean, and that's what Paul's constantly doing. He's saying, okay, I, you can just, you can hear, you can just feel steam coming out of his ears. He's like, okay, let's look at Jesus. I mean, I might go off here, so let's just look at Jesus, and let's just look at the very first Lord's Supper. Let's just get our cues from the very first Lord's Supper, and that's what he does, 23 through 26. And there's so much content here, I'm just going to make two comments here. First of all, verse 23, the Lord's Supper happens, 
Notice, on the night he was betrayed. The very first communion was on the darkest of nights for Jesus. It was on the night he was betrayed. We know from the Gospel of Luke at the first Lord's Supper, very sadly, an argument breaks out with the disciples. And you know what it was about? Yeah, who's the greatest? I mean, just try to think about the pain of remembering that after the crucifixion, if you're a disciple. Remember, guys, we were in that room arguing about who was the greatest. Peter, very outspoken amongst the disciples, spoke during the Lord's Supper with the greatest confidence. And just a few hours later, he turns into the greatest coward. Judas sells out his friend for 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus is giving, we got to remember, Jesus is giving himself away at the moment of the greatest betrayal by his friends. James Edward, a quote on your bulletin, love this. The original Last Supper is attended by traitors and cowards. It is a table not of merit, but of grace. See what Paul wants to do? He wants to grab all these people who've got some kind of first world, first class mindset and say, guys, the only people that can come to this table used to be traitors and cowards. There aren't any first class people at the supper except for Jesus. He's the only one. Everyone else is in cargo, right? No, there's nobody in another class. It's Jesus and then everybody else. Let's remember when we come, we used to be traitors or cowards. And let that adjust our thinking towards Jesus and one another. Second thing here, he says, this is my body and this is my blood, which is for you. Most of you know this, but it's helpful just to, to remember what the first, the last supper or this, this first communion service was remembering. You know it. It's remembering the, the, the history of the Israelites. They were enslaved. They couldn't get away from this oppressive power. And God was, was bringing Moses and bringing to bear uh, his judgment on these people in Egypt to free his people. And you remember the very last plague, the last sign was the Passover lamb. So God comes and he says to, to all of Egypt, I'm coming down for judgment. Very terrifying statement. And when he, come down, when he comes down for judgment, everyone gets judged. Not just the Egyptians, but everybody in Egypt. And there's one way to get out of the judgment. To take a perfect lamb, slaughter it, eat the meat of the lamb, and take the blood and put it over the doorpost of your house. And when God's angel of death, when his judgment comes down, it will pass over the house of those who are underneath the blood of the lamb. 
That's, that's what they're celebrating. This was a celebration that had happened for 1,500 years up until this point. And Jesus comes and he takes the elements and says, guys, it's all about me. And they knew. Because John the Baptist, when, they first, when he first saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to hear so you can go to heaven. This is what you deserve. My body, my blood is being substituted for you. And if you would stand underneath this shelter, then, then death can pass over you. And so when you remember that that's what's happening here, you're, you're, you're remembering that, there, again, there's no first-class passenger in Corinth. There's nobody impressive at the Lord's table except for the Lord. And Paul is just reminding them of the selflessness of the Savior so that then when they come together, their character would be selfless as well. That's selfish. Therefore, he's turning a corner here, verse 27. Therefore, examine yourselves. He's clearly pointed out a problem. He's clearly pointed out the the picture he wants to have in your mind. And now before you and I come to the table, we want to heed Paul's words here. Examine yourself. You know, the people in Corinth were great at examining each other. They had a keen eye for the other person's problem. But they just couldn't seem to see themselves. And so Paul is trying to say, "I I want you to turn all of your attention now to yourself. Not to somebody else. And when you read these verses, as Carl did, they're, they're a little alarming. The, these people were coming to the table and judgment was coming on to them. Not grace. And some of them were weak. Some of them were ill. Some of them even died. So it's a serious thing about how you worship the Lord. It's not something to be taken lightly. And I think the, the key phrase in all of this content here is in verse 27. This is the, the phrase that you and I want to unpack. We want to understand real clearly. Whoever takes the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. See, that's what you're thinking. That's okay. Well, I don't want to get sick. I don't want to die. I don't want to do anything wrong. I, I don't want to do anything in an unworthy manner. So what is that? And it's Really important to read these words carefully and slowly because Paul says an unworthy manner, not an unworthy individual. Got to really have that planted in your mind. In other words, he doesn't say whoever takes the Lord's Supper better be worthy. What if he had said that? This table is going to look just the same at the end of the service as it did beginning, right? No one can come up that's worthy. But see, if you don't really understand what that phrase is, you go, okay, I'm, I'm not worthy. Right, you're not worthy. He's just saying, are you taking it in an unworthy manner? Paul's calling Christians to examine themselves, 
not to find out reasons that they are unworthy, but to find evidence of a repentant heart. All of us could think very clearly about how unworthy we are. But, but is there evidence of a repentant heart? If a believer has a repentant heart, they should come to the table. This is what one commentator said that was helpful for me. Paul wants believers to examine themselves not for perfection, but for recognition of their need of Christ's perfection. You hear that? You're not examining yourself and saying, am I perfect? Am I perfectly clean? No, answer no. I can answer that for you. Do I need Christ's perfection? Oh, yes, I do. I'm desperate for that. The only time Christians should refrain from the table is when they find themselves with a despising attitude toward God. A despising attitude towards God. See, that's what was happening with the Corinthians. Paul says you have a despising attitude towards God. Or a hardened disgust or disregard towards the people of God. So we need to examine ourselves. Not are we worthy because the answer is no. Jesus is the only one worthy. Is the condition of my heart repentant? Or, or am I sitting there and I just have a hardened attitude about God? I despise the way he works in this world. He should listen to me. And these people over here, I know they're in the church, but they don't belong here. That's the condition of your heart. I'm going to take very serious attention about coming to this table. If you say, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I'm in need of grace. I have, I have attitudes that I hate. I wish I didn't have them. God, help me. Come. This is the place to get grace. But come with a clenched fist or clenched teeth about God or his people. Think you'd want to wrestle with God first. It's serious how you worship the Lord. It's great. But it's not something to do frivolously. Something to take a moment and really say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be like anybody in that church. I, can you help my heart? Can you give me grace and come and receive God's grace for the worst of sinners? Let's pray. Lord, we come today maybe in a more reflective time than most other times, but we want to remember that while the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest, you were displaying for them who was going to be the greatest by saying this is the blood of a new covenant. 
And this is my body that's going to be given for you. Because it's about Jesus and it's not about us. And so I pray for my own heart. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need of a Savior. There, there seem to be forces working on me that I don't even see where they come from. I need you to help me. I need you to help me with your word. I need you to help me with your people. And I need you to help me with this meal to have grace to move forward. I pray for my friends and my family here, even the stranger. Or for those who don't know you, don't trust in you, they would seriously consider as they just stay in their seat, what, what do they believe in? What are they putting their hope in? For every believer to examine themselves. Not to see if they're unworthy, but to see if they have a heart that is hungry for Jesus to be their Savior. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The music will play here in a moment, and the ushers will come and dismiss you by row. And you come and receive the grace of God. <laughs>